Welcome to another episode of the Purple and Bold Podcast. I'm Shane Metlin from the Daily News Record. Uh, here to talk about JMU sports and mostly JMU football specifically. And going to do something a little bit different this time just because uh, I sent a call out for a mailbag column on the way back from Huntington last week on Friday morning. Ended up not having quite as much time or space to write that mailbag column as I thought. So what I'm going to do is go ahead and answer questions on the podcast, make it a mailbag pod, and uh, just kind of do that this way and give that a try, see how things go. Before we get into that, let's just set up where we are in JMU athletics right now. Obviously, the JMU football Dukes are 7-0, and 4-0 in the Sunbelt Conference and ranked number 25 in the AP and coaches polls. Um, back in the top 25 for the second straight season. Uh, quite an accomplishment for a uh, second-year transitioning team, uh, which we'll get into some of that transitioning stuff here in just a little while. Um, but the Dukes preparing to host Old Dominion this weekend. Homecoming, nationally televised, 8 p.m. kickoff at Bridgeforce Stadium. That one sold out. It's going to be probably a wild atmosphere. Um you know, big recruiting weekend for multiple sports on homecoming. Um, among those is the women's basketball team, which will host five-star point guard Kiyomi McMiller, who they have been in on from the beginning recruiting-wise, would be, I think, one of the highest-ranked recruits to ever choose JMU in any sport, should she do so. Uh, big weekend recruiting there for them, uh, obviously for football and other sports too will be a, a gigantic recruiting weekend to build off this momentum of a top 25 football team. ODU coming in, <clears throat> a surprising four and three, um, three and one in the Sun Belt. They're two of the losses are to uh, ACC teams. Uh, <clears throat> lost at Virginia Tech, also lost um, a narrow defeat at home to Wake Forest. Um, so we'll see... Um, probably see a, a strong effort from the Monarchs against the Dukes. It's a better team than I think a lot of people were anticipating coming into the year. They're making some things work for them despite really, you know, not not to knock anybody too hard, but they're lacking talent in the quarterback position, but they're making it work um, somewhat in that regard. Um, new spread offense uh, with a new offensive coordinator. It'll be a different look for the Dukes uh, than what they've seen throughout most of the year, certainly what they saw last week at Marshall. So definitely intrigued to see if ODU can come up with the big explosive plays that have kind of been their signature this season when they've had success. They've done it by often going 60 yards or more for touchdowns, both offensively and defensively. So we'll see what happens there. But that's kind of, you know, just the basic recap where we are with JMU football before I start answering some of these questions that you all sent to me via Twitter, email, other ways. Um, so we'll see how this one goes. First up, a couple of uh, sort of related questions from Twitter. Uh, first one says, if the Sun Belt reversed course and decided to let JMU play for a title, would the Dukes actually be eligible for a New Year's Six Bowl? And are they complete, or are they completely ineligible from the college football play rankings during transition? Um, and another, a separate person asked, is there any precedent for conferences changing their own policies due to financial incentives arising, i.e. bowl money, money for bowl appearances? 
So right now, to start that off, right now, from what I found out this week, uh, JMU would not be eligible for the college football playoff in any way, even if they become bowl eligible somehow. Um, there's a path for bowl eligibility for JMU should there not be enough teams with six wins. Basically, that's the simplest way to put that. There's some exceptions, but simplest way to put that is there's not enough six-win teams to fill 41 bowl games, then JMU would be pretty much at the top of the list to go to a bowl game. So there is that path to being eligible for some kind of bowl, but according to the college football playoff, that's not going to put JMU into consideration for the Fiesta Bowl, which would take the top group of five team. So for right now, that's a little bit disappointing news, news on JMU's part, because um, I think there was you know some hope that if the – Dukes continue to win. We're 12 and 0 at the end of the regular season. And then suddenly found out, you know, in the last couple of weeks of the season that they were bowl eligible because of the transition rules that allow them to fill a spot. Then, you know, would they be able to be selected for the Fiesta Bowl if they were, in fact, the best group of five team? Doesn't seem like that's going to be the case. Whether or not that changes probably depends on if. Now that politicians are involved, if they can force the NCAA's hand to deliver some kind of a waiver with the sort of uh, political threats that you know you're seeing from a lot of J or a lot of Virginia state legislature members, as well as the Attorney General of Virginia, um, at this point, it would have to be a complete reversal of the waiver process. <clears throat> I think at this point for JMU to be involved in the college football playoff now to the second part of that the second question of that is if there's any precedent for conferences changing their own policies which would be which is referring to the possibility of jmu then being allowed to play in the conference championship game that's not going to happen at this point if there's no real financial incentive as jmu can't be in the college football playoff um, there would be no real financial incentive to do that for the Sun Belt. And I don't think there was any precedent because there's, this is just really a completely unprecedented situation. Um, I don't, from digging in and talking to people who are making these decisions and the ones who are, um, you know, fighting for JMU and on the politics side of things and just the NCAA and the college football playoff and everybody, I just the way everything's been handled. And this concludes the way stats are compiled and things like that. It seems that clear that nobody had ever anticipated seeing a team transition in the manner that JMU has, both in their competitiveness and their quality of play and in making the transition to play a full schedule the first year, then have basically a full array of scholarships by the second year and just be in the position that JMU is in during the transition. COVID plays a part of that when it comes to scholarship numbers, but there just aren't any rules to guide this kind of situation because nobody really anticipated that. The only thing way I see that changing um, in terms of the Sun Belt kind of reversing course, letting JMU play for a championship at this point would be if the Virginia politicians are successful in their effort to strong arm the NCAA into giving JMU a waiver that means full bowl eligibility. Uh, if anything like that can happen in the next few weeks, then I would think 
we may be looking at a situation where um, you know, there'd be no reason at that point for the Sun Belt to not let JMU play in the conference championship game. But at this point, there's really no reason for them to reverse that. Uh, there's no financial incentive. Shift gears slightly. We'll talk a little bit of men's basketball because I got the question on Twitter. Any updates from the JMU men's basketball secret scrimmages? Um, the JMU men's basketball team secret scrimmages, um, for those who aren't, you know, completely up on what happens as far as preseason basketball, you have the option to play either public exhibition games, usually against like a D2, a D3 team, or you can play secret scrimmages that are closed door, no media fans, anything allowed, um, but they are officiated, you know, scrimmages against a peer team. Usually, you know, you will play somebody who's, you know, basically on the same level as you JMU um, this year had those on the docket to play closed door scrimmages against Liberty, which happened last weekend. And then this weekend, they're going to do one against Towson, uh, both solid mid majors. So it should be good measuring sticks for JMU. Sounds like uh, they didn't do so well at, against Liberty. Um, the Flames, you know, won that scrimmage. Though, should say that I think Terrence Edwards maybe slightly injured his thumb. Not, I think, a long-term concern, but like kind of jammed his thumb. Didn't play very much. I heard Michael Green didn't really play. Um, so... They, they were a little bit shorthanded, but I think there was just reading between the lines from uh, some of Mark Byington's comments on things other than the scrimmage itself. seems like he's wanting to see a lot more out of his defense um, than he got in that scrimmage, especially disrupting things. Uh, I heard that, especially without Green at point guard, that if JMU can get out in transition, they're looking quite good, but the uh, half-court offense struggled quite a bit against Liberty. So definitely eager to hear if there's any signs of improvement against um, Towson this weekend, though, you know, I would say these scrimmages tend to have no bearing on what actually happens in the regular season. You can remember a couple of years back, JMU really took it to Richmond in one of these. Um, you were hearing about how good they looked in there. At the end of the year, JMU's scraping to be above 500 and Richmond's making a run in the NCAA tournament. So, Take all this with a grain of salt, especially when people are more conservative when it comes to injuries and things like that than uh, they would be in a real game. Easily the most common question I got over the past week, both via Twitter and I got several emails about it, is about running back Latrell Palmer, who has been getting next to no playing time in recent weeks for the Dukes. Um, obviously, He's had a strong career for JMU, rushed for more than 900 yards a couple of years ago. He's been um, he's been a prominent uh, player in the JMU offense for a few years, um, filled in nicely for injured players such as Percy. Um, and, you know, he's just not getting a playing time right now. I, so I've been asked, is he in the doghouse? Is he injured? Is there anything strange or, you know, of note going on. And I really don't think so. I think he's just number three at best on the depth chart right now behind Kalon Black and Tyson Lawton. Um, I think those two have been relatively effective. The Jamie running game has not been its strongest point to this point in the season. Um, 
but I, you know, seeing what I've seen of practice where, um, they don't let us see much, but you see the individual drills and, you know, warm ups and things like that. There's no sign of any injury. And, you know, Latrell seems to be putting on a, a happy face and being a good camper, um, in practices, no, no signs of malcontentness. And I really just think it's a case where, you know, you look at Kurt Signetti kind of across the board, and it seems like in the last couple of years in particular, his philosophy has been to, you know, identify his very best players and keep them on the field as much as possible. You know, whether it's a situation of, you know, Chris Thornton, you're taking a little bit of a risk when you put him back there to return kicks and punts, but you're also putting the ball in the hands of one of your best playmakers by doing that. And, you know, some coaches would maybe use the special teams as an opportunity to get some um, guys who don't play as much in there and get them opportunities. You know, you look at a lot of, uh, a lot of teams that Jamie has played. Jamie right now, the defensive line we've raved about all year with good reason. But, you know, they're basically only going six deep on the defensive line, five for the most part, and four are clearly standouts who, you know, Signetti really just wants to have on the field absolutely as much as possible. And you see other teams, you know, you look at Marshall. They're substituting in some guys on the defensive line last week. Um, Based on situation, you're putting in some bigger guys if it's, you know, third and short or whatever. And I think it's just a difference in philosophy. I don't think that, like, if Jamie were to go eight deep on the defensive line, that we're talking about guys who just absolutely cannot play. But I think when you've got just pure studs the way Jamie does in certain positions, um, that Signetti's philosophy is keep those guys on the field if they can be on the field. And you're going to be better than your opponents on most snaps. And, you know... You break it. You break things down. They want to go one and one, one and zero oh every week, and you want to win each snap and each possession and each drive um, to get to that point. And it really just seems like right now, the coaching staff is convinced that they're better off playing the two other running backs for the majority of the time. You know, Latrell, I think to some degree, he was a power back at the FCS level. I'm not sure he's as effective of a power runner at the S at the Sunbelt level. Um, you know, he's done, he just doesn't run over people quite as much. And maybe that's some of that's, uh, you know, the grind that he's taken over the years. Um, some of that is just going against bigger and better players. He also is probably the one guy in the running back room who has the biggest issue with fumbling the ball. And that's not going to earn you any playing time. Um, he hasn't done that a ton in games, there's one, I think, so far this year. Go back and check the stats. But um, in past years, he's had some trouble putting the ball on the ground. Um, he's tried to work through that. I don't know what's happened in practices, if that's been something that the coaching staff has seen out of him. But, I mean, the basic answer to the question that I got over and over again here recently is that I don't think there's anything out of the ordinary going on. I don't think it's a, a major doghouse issue, you know, He's not a malcontent or a troublemaker of any any kind that I'm aware of. And I don't think it's any kind of major injury either, keeping him off the field. I think it's just that right now they want to go with Kalon Black and Tyson Lawton for the most part. 
This question via email, I'm asked, what if anything is known about where we are in the stadium expansion process? The administration has made vague statements, but I assume behind the curtain there are certain milestones, X amount of giving, X amount of sellouts. I would make that assumption too, that there probably are some milestones as far as, especially when it comes to just trying to secure the funding, that there are things that they want to be able to point to. What exactly those are, I don't know for sure. Um, but I think it's certainly significant that right now, JMU is above 100% capacity attendance-wise for the season. With another sellout coming up, they continue to win. I would think that would continue to be the case, especially when you look at they're not going to be playing at home on Thanksgiving weekend, which is always one of the tougher times to um, get a sellout. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think like as far as milestones and things – I don't know specifically what they are, but I would think that they're they're getting there when it comes to sellouts. As far as what their need for giving, I don't know. The Duke Club continues to really grow. Um, more and more members all the time. They're getting more significant like size donations, but they're also you know just have more members with smaller donations. I don't know if that's enough to <clears throat> get the ball rolling on um, stadium expansion. Um, you know, there's a lot to dig into about what it's going to take as far as if they're going to have to borrow money, um, which they did for um, the Atlantic Union Bank Center. Uh, you know, where funding might come from, corporate sponsorships might be. I think this is something that is going to be not only a huge topic when it comes to interviewing candidates for an AD to replace the retiring Jeff Bourne. I think it's going to be like probably the huge first project for said new AD is to get out there and secure that funding, whether it be some sort of combination of donations from your Duke club donor base or getting more creative with the corporate sponsorships. I mean, you look at what JMU gets paid for naming rights for the Atlantic union bank center. And um, I mean, you know, the UBA orthopedics on the court, things like that. It's it's significant, but I think it's almost, you know, I think you could argue they got lowballed a little bit on that based on being, you know, a, a rural school compared to, you know, something like ODU, which gets much more corporate support than JMU does right now. Um, and also at the time, JMU basketball, men's basketball in particular, wasn't a huge selling point when you're trying to get that arena built and and moved on. They hadn't had, you know, extremely great crowds and things like that. I think when that's up for renegotiation and uh, the, if the basketball team continues to win, you're looking at a completely different situation now that you've seen big crowds and interest in the Atlantic Union Bank Center. Not going to be an issue with football right now. Right now, you got to kind of strike while the iron's hot with what this team's doing as far as, you know, generating that support, both from your donors and from, you know, maybe, maybe from corporate entities that are outside of the Valley. I mean, you look at, you know, town bank is sponsoring the Royal rivalry. I don't see any town banks in, you know, Stanton or Harrisonburg, but they obviously have some interest in JMU sports, although they're, they're more of an ODU sponsor, but I think, you know, you might see some things from, you know, outside of the actual Shenandoah Valley 
open up as far as corporate sponsorships and things go. And that's going to be like the big thing as far as getting the stadium expanded. Uh, but it seems like there's very little doubt that that's where JMU wants to go with things is to ex- expand the stadium, get to where, you know, you have at least 30,000 to 40,000 seats um, and continue to win at football and, and fill the thing is also going to be a huge key. Another question via Twitter. Um, to, to show you a little bit about this is just you know getting off topic a little bit but this question came to me in both spanish and english and i know there are some uh, spanish language outlets that cover the um sunbelt pretty heavily i hear um, them ask questions on the um weekly teleconference which when we're talking about um you know the growth of jmu sports when they join the sunbelt and more attention we've talked a lot about the tv ratings and getting on espn and everything else I think that's probably like, you know, maybe an underrated aspect of it is that there's definitely more international attention, even on a um, F, F, a group of five league like the Sun Belt, just being in the FBS level, you, you're, you're gaining attention from a completely different market than you were at the FCS level. And that's, that's just a little sidebar to the fact that I got this question um, from, an, from, I think, an outlet that does cover some college football um, and for Spanish language um, fans, so it came to me both in English and Spanish. It says, of the five games JMU has left, the only one I think they can lose is Georgia State. How do you see it? Is an undefeated season possible? Um, undefeated season, certainly possible. I don't know if I'd go with likely quite yet, but um, certainly possible. I don't see it as Georgia State being the only team that can beat JMU. Um, I think they'll be favored in the vast majority of games the rest of the way. But uh, even this weekend against ODU, um, you know, they're they're a big favorite, but you look at how things go. This will be my opportunity to really preview, I guess, the ODU game um, and work that into this answer. ODU, if it's a clean football game without a lot of turnovers, um, without a lot of like crazy plays, JMU will dominate ODU. I don't think there's much doubt about that. You know, if it's just if it's just line up and run your plays and see who wins, I don't think there's going to be much of an issue. But you know, is JMU due for a game where they turn the ball over a little bit, where they have to overcome uh, some adversity? Where we we saw the kickoff return for a touchdown um, at Marshall, uh, where they you know gave up a special teams touchdown and an explosion play in that manner um but Marshall's offense was basically no threat to put up points of their own so there wasn't a whole lot of concern even when that happened that Jamie was going to lose that game ODU has done some some crazy things as far as you know putting up huge yardage explosion plays their offense has done it their defense has done it as well um is this going to be a game where you know if Jordan McLeod some turns around and throws three interceptions and a couple of them are pick sixes or whatever sets them up in great field position that gives ODU a chance in this game. And, you know, I think that could happen almost any week. I think JMU is going to be the better team in every game they have the rest of the way, but I don't look at it as only Georgia state as their only chance at losing. That said, I do think JMU is the better team in their games the rest of the way. This team has shown remarkable focus throughout the season um they've you know grit and tenacity and they seem to be locked in week in week out that's a 
testament to the coaching staff. You you can see Kurt Signetti understands the psychology of his team right now. And I expect them to be pretty focused times, but it's college sports. It's young guys. Anything can happen. I think an undefeated season certainly is a possibility right now, and it would be an incredible achievement. I wouldn't necessarily go betting on it, though. But I, I think it's definitely something that um, JMU can do, and it's going to be thrilling to watch them chase that. Next question, also coming from Twitter. Any insight into the quarterback depth chart and what might have caused Barnett to fall? Um, not a ton of insight, really. I mean, like I've said before, we don't see a ton of things in practice that would quite tip that off. Um, I will say... I have spoken to somebody who um, is around Alonza Barnett in a non-football capacity around campus and um, have heard that, you know, it was tough on him. The, the way the, the first week of the season went as far as his confidence things, he maybe needs to have an opportunity to, you know, just regain his uh, self-esteem in that regard. Um, but, I mean, there's other factors too. Like, Kurt Signetti has said all along that, Billy Atkins, who is now, I think, fairly obviously the number two quarterback. Um, it's listed as an or between him and Barnett on the depth chart, but it was Billy who came in when um, when Jordan McLeod had to go out for a series at Marshall. Um, Signetti has said all along that Billy Atkins has the most quote-unquote arm talent um, of quarterbacks that he's had at JMU. He can really sling the ball. There are things that he has to do much better. I think a lot of that is in the uh, preparation and the mental aspects of the game, being ready to make the best decisions. Um, but as far as just like throwing the ball down the field and having zip on his passes, things like that, he's as good as anybody JMU has had. And the potential is there for him to be a really, really good quarterback. And the potential for Barnett is also there. Um, you can even like Brett Griffiths. I've, I've, I've gotten the question. This wasn't, you know, directly into the mailbag, but I've gotten the question about Brett Griffiths, the fourth quarterback on the roster, the wake forest transfer, um, about if he's dropped on the depth chart. Cause I think he might've been listed third to start the season. Um, that may have been just sending a message to Billy Atkins. Um, Griffiths is, he looks like, a quarterback with a lot of potential when we've seen him in spring, uh, what we've seen in practice. I feel like he's just a guy who has to get stronger, put a little more zip on his passes. They take a little longer to get where they're going than the other three guys. I think he's got, you know, what it takes if he can, you know, add a little arm strength to probably play for JMU someday. Uh, but not at all surprised that he's fourth right now. Um, and really in some ways, just take the depth chart out of it. That's, after number one, I don't think it really matters too much who's listed where on the depth chart, to be honest. Um, but who's three and who's four on a given week might depend on who they want running the scout team for the upcoming opponent. Um, I think, you know, somebody who's maybe got a little bit mobile, more of a mobile dual threat quarterback, you might see Alonzo Barnett on the scout team, even if he's, you know, even if he's like probably judged as the third best quarterback at that moment, he might be on the scout team and essentially number four for that week. 
and vice versa if it's more of a pocket passer uh, for Brett Griffith. But, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't read too much into this the depth chart aspect of it. But clearly right now, um, Jordan McLeod is the absolute number one. And I think if they have to go with somebody else, it's going to be Billy Atkins for the time being. Hopefully, you know, you'll see Alonzo Barnett get another chance somewhere down the line and, you know, just kind of get his mojo back when it comes to uh, getting getting prepared for next season. But I would be a little bit surprised if we see him um, if we see him again this season. That would mean something has probably changed in that regard. Last question, also from Twitter. Um, any talk on efforts to extend head coach Kurt Signetti and also chances you think he leaves at the end of this season? I wish I had a little more insight into this. Um, I'm sure there are talks about extending him and where to find the money to give him a, uh, a nice raise will come from. Um, but, you know, I don't know any details at this point about what it is. I think they tend to um, talk about that with the coaches themselves more after the season ends, but I'm sure it's something that Jamie's administration is trying to plan for at this moment. But you're also in a situation where um, you have an outgoing athletic director who will be around, you know, in December, January, February when you want to get this done. But he's also setting things up for his um, successor who may be chosen by that point, maybe not. Um, Jeff will officially be done in the spring. You know, they'll want to have somebody on board. And if it's somebody who's taking over this department long term and you know who it is how much are they involved in the process of you know trying to come up with a, a reasonable extension to keep Kurt Signetti around as far as like whether or not he leaves I think that all depends on what jobs are available in the offseason um, you know just where the coaching carousel goes because you know without having had you know any significant discussions with him about you know what his future holds just based on what I've known about him. What I've heard from people who have talked to him is I don't think he's the kind of coach who's going to leave for a gigantic paycheck at a place where he can't win or even at a place where it might take a few years to get it turned around and start winning at the rate that he's, that he's accustomed to. I think, um, you know, he's a guy who likes where he is. He likes what he's doing. He likes what he's able to do at JMU. And he's got a stated goal of being in the college football playoff at JMU, which there's an opportunity to do that in the coming years as the playoff expands and uh, JMU's can, if they can continue to be at the top of the Sun Belt, that's going to put them in position for that, um, you know, just across the board. Like they're going they right now look like a program that can be in a mix for the college football playoff in a lot of years. And that's got to be pretty intriguing for a coach who, um, you know, let's look at it too. Like he didn't demand a gigantic raise after last year's successful season. Um, you know, he got a raise, he got a nice raise. He makes a good salary for living in Harrisonburg, Virginia, but he's not at the top of the Sun Belt pecking order. If he demanded to be, I would think that he probably would be. I think for him, there's some desire to see money go to other parts of the program that will help him win more than just pad his bank account. 
that's not to say that if he gets offered, you know, $3 million a year at a place that he sees himself as a good fit, that he wouldn't leave JMU. I mean, I, I tend to think, you know, if Pitt came open for whatever reason, he'd probably be there in a heartbeat. I mean, that just makes way too much sense for him. Um, but I don't know what other jobs would be as intriguing to him. I don't think just taking a power five job to say it's a power five job is something he wants to do. If the resources aren't in place for him to have success there. Um, so, you know, you have a successful coach at this level. There's always the possibility that you're not going to keep them. But I would think, I would think if you can be somewhat optimistic that you can keep anybody, Kurt Zanetti is probably fairly high on that list. Um, because I, you know, I said this on another podcast uh, just yesterday when I was asked, you know, about this a little bit, you know, he reveres his father, his late father who died last year, who made it to the college football hall of fame, mostly on his accomplishments as a division two coach. He also coached at West Virginia, which didn't end, you know, in, um, you know, a happy way for uh, the Signetti family, to be honest with you, Kurt, Kurt's a, uh, West Virginia alum, but from everything I've heard, that's not necessarily at the top of his list of places to go. Um, so just put that out there, but he looks at his father, his father made the college football hall of fame as a division two coach. Kurt has that rare opportunity to join his father in the college football hall of fame. If he continues to win at the rate he is at JMU and does something like take James Madison of all programs to the college football playoff. I, I think he's in the hall of fame if he does that at JMU. And I would think that has to be a pretty intriguing possibility for the man, given, you know, everything we know about him and his you know personal situation, but you never know how, th- how these things are going to play out. Um, you know, it's not to say that he's definitely staying or he's never going anywhere, but I tend to think JMU has as good a chance of hanging on to a successful coach um, as almost anywhere uh, among these group of five programs. So that's it. I think I answered all the questions I have. If I skipped one of your questions, I apologize. I tried to keep it uh, organized and um, keep an idea of who, who got back to me. Uh, we can do this again. Uh, another time if people enjoyed it. And if not, we'll get back to uh, some more of a traditional podcast format here in the coming weeks and uh, talk more about, you know, Jamie football, other sports, basketball, right around the corner. Um, with the men opening up at Michigan state, the women will be at home against Eastern Mennonite on November 6th. That'll be here before we know it less than two weeks. And we'll have plenty more to say about JV basketball, football, and all sports. But for now, this is uh, Shane Metlin signing off. It's, you've been listening to the Purple and Bold podcast from the Daily News Record, and thanks for clicking on us.